Well, it first reached a tipping point in our national awareness maybe about 15 to 20 years ago with the production of movies like As Good As It Gets, starring Jack Nicholson, and Matchstick Men, starring Nicolas Cage. Then there was the USA Network series where actor Tony Shalhoub played the unforgettable mystery detective Adrian Monk. It's a phenomenon that affects some 7 million people in their daily lives here in the U.S. alone. Sometimes this manifests itself in excessive uh, hand-washing or counting of certain items. In other cases, it's marked by repeated checking of things around us, whether locks or clocks. It's frequently seen in an inordinate desire for cleanliness and order around us in our home or perhaps in our car. But it can be the other way around. This particular phenomenon can be expressed in terms of uh, hoarding one's possessions and household items to the point where life just becomes unlivable. Perhaps you've guessed by now what I might be circling here. I'm speaking of what is, of course, commonly known as OCD, or obsessive-compulsive disorder. Now, the, the DSM-5, which is the simple way of speaking of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, it's published by the American Psychological Association, which is, which is not a th- authoritative for us in any biblical sense as a church, um, it is really helpful at the level of observation and definition here. So let me float to you an observation uh, definition from DSM-5, that OCD is characterized by the presence of obsessions and compulsions. By obsessions, we mean recurrent and persistent thoughts, urges or images experienced as intrusive to a person. Classic obsessions, like I said, include inordinate issues with safety or perhaps germs. Now, compulsions are related to obsessions, but they're different. Compulsions are defined in the DSM-5 as repetitive behaviors that an individual feels driven to perform in response to their obsession. So take our two examples. An uh, an obsession with germs would lead to a compulsion with hand-washing. Or an obsession with safety might result in excessive checking of locks and doors. So cleaning, checking, repeating, arranging, this is the life of a person who experiences OCD. And what makes it a disorder, at least in the world of secular psychology in this nation, is when the problem becomes not just an occasional, but a frequent event, a a life-dominating pattern of behavior. Sometimes we use the term OCD all too flippantly when we speak of our own hang-ups, don't we? We say, I'm a little bit OCD in this area. Uh, But we don't really mean that. We don't mean it in a life-dominating sense. But OCD is a diagnosis that's given to folks whose lives have simply become overrun and unmanageable because of what they obsess over and what they are led uh, to be compulsive about in terms of behavior. OCD runs these people's lives. It's way uh, utterly masters them. Which, by the way, is one one reason among a thousand that our church is seeking to become a a fellowship of people rich and wise in the care and cure of souls. We intend to launch a counseling center underneath the the leadership of this church and oversight of its elders. 
the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling, because we care about things like this. Now, you might ask, (laughs) what does OCD have to do with today's sermon topic? And my answer is quite a lot. This week, it's our privilege to launch out into a study of what will possibly, in my view, be understood in the history of the free church as the most significant um, uh, article in our statement of faith, because it's the only article in the 2008 revision of our statement of faith that has absolutely no parallel in the original statement of faith from 1950. This article is about Christian living. The sermon is called The Compulsion of the Gospel, what we believe about Christian living. The compulsion of the gospel. Now, why use that language? Well, frankly, because this is biblical. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ, it says in the ESV, controls us. The word that Paul uses there can refer to what the banks of a river do to hem in a current or confine a current. The love of Christ constrains and urges and overmasters and completely dominates and overwhelms us. Uh, As the New English Bible renders it, the, the love of Christ leaves us no choice. In other words, the gospel is our obsession. The gospel is our compulsion. Here's the big idea this morning. We believe that the gospel compels us to Christ-like living and witness to the world. We believe that the gospel compels us. It's our obsession. It compels us to Christ-like living and witness to the world. And if you haven't done so, I invite you at this time to find your sermon outline and just unfold it to Article 8. You can have the sermon outline on one side and Article 8 of the EFCA Statement of Faith on the other. What we believe about Christian living. Ask yourself this question. Is the gospel your obsession this morning? Does it compel you? What do we mean by that? Follow along with me as I read. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from His sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love Him supremely and others sacrificially, to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. With God's Word, the Spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat the spiritual forces of evil. In obedience to Christ's commission, we are to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and deed. That's what I mean. Are you, am I, obsessed by the gospel? Does it dominate your thinking? Does it propel your behavior? Does it compel you to live a certain sort of lifestyle? Does the gospel do that? Because it's designed to. If you're a follower of Jesus, could you be spiritually diagnosed with OCGO, obsessive compulsive gospel orientation? We believe that the gospel compels us to Christ-like living and witness in the world. So this morning, we're going to look at three ways that the good news of the life and death and resurrection and soon return of Jesus 
three ways that the good news of Jesus compels us toward Christian living. And let's just not breeze over those first four words. Before we get to the three, let's just look at these four words. The gospel compels us. Gospel compels us. First sentence in Article 8 is far away my favorite sentence in our entire statement of faith, and it represents this concern so well. Allow me to read it again. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from His sanctifying power and purpose. That truth move you like it does me. I am so thankful for that sentence. I hope it moves you. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from His sanctifying power and purpose. What does that mean? Well, you've heard it. If you've heard it once, you've heard it a thousand times from this pulpit. God's grace is not just about pardon for sin. It's about power. It means that Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, as it teaches that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ apart from good works, therefore no boasting, but we are saved by grace through faith in Christ for good works and therefore no, anybody know? Coasting. No coasting. No boasting, but no coasting. It means that the reformers were right, that we are justified by faith alone. But the faith that justifies is never alone. Not saving faith, anyway. Faith, apart from works, is dead. Grace in the Bible is not simply divine leniency toward us in our sin. It is divine leverage for us over sin. That's what grace is. And it makes it so clear, the passage that was read for us just a few moments ago, Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave us for himself, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify himself for himself a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Do you hear him? Grace trains us. How many of us think that way about grace? It trains us. It disciplines us. God's grace is not just about pardon for sin. God's grace is about power to live in the strength that God supplies to the glory that Christ deserves. Because of Christ, God accepts us as we are. And because of Christ, he refuses to leave us as we are. And it compels us. The gospel compels us in at least three ways. Number one, the gospel compels us to live the great commandment. The gospel compels, nothing else could compel us to live the great commandment. We're going to see what this is in just a moment. The gospel compels us to live in the great commandment. Let's look at Article 8 and just how we see the first two sentences work together, how the gospel compels. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially, to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. The gospel compels us to live the great commandment. Great commandment is communicated in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39. 
where Jesus calls us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. This, Jesus says, is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, he's not um, uh, calling us to love ourselves there. He's assuming that we do love ourselves there. The way that we love ourselves, the way that we regard ourselves first, regard others first. You're third. God's first. Everyone else is second. I am third. Now, love God, love others. That's the great commandment. But notice, even within the great commandment, there's no motive there. It's just a mandate. It's a mandate to love. To love God supremely and to love others sacrificially. But why? I mean, why should this be the overriding pursuit of our lives? Given the, the ease and temptation uh, to idolatry that's all around us, um, given the challenge that many people are simply to tolerate, much less to love, where's our motive? What reason does Scripture provide us to love God supremely and others sacrificially? The answer is deceptively simple. It's found in 1 John 4.19. 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. That's it. And that's enough. God's love for us, expressed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, lives us inexcusable if we would do anything other than live a life of love toward other people. The gospel compels us, compels us to live the great commandment. Now, Article 8 furnishes us with three examples, three opportunities, really, for us to express love. Uh, Care for one another, number one. Compassion toward the poor, number two. Justice for the oppressed. Each of these are, in our statement of faith, concrete examples of ways that we as God's beloved in Christ can love other people. We spent Sunday, last Sunday, addressing part of the first of these, which is care for one another. Remember, we believe that the gospel is now embodied in the new community called the church. We are the embodiment of the gospel here in this local church. And it's in the local church where, through our love for one another, we embody that gospel then to the world. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the reverse is certainly true. No one will know if we are his disciples if we do not have love for one another. And our love for one another is also clear evidence of our love for God, that we have been born again in the first place. 1 John 3.14 says we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Or 1 John 4.20 adds, He who does not love his brother cannot, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Galatians 6.10 summarizes it so well. It says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now notice Paul says, especially the household of faith, not exclusively the household of faith. If there were time, we would unfold in great detail our concern for compassion in this church toward the poor and justice for the oppressed. Our free church leadership 
serves us so well in this regard as they write this. The poor, the oppressed, we take to include any who are needy, powerless, and vulnerable, such as widows and orphans, the elderly, the disabled, the unborn, the immigrant, minority, or the mistreated. I, I for one, am so thankful that our church has become a home for these types of concerns over the years that our church has had the privilege to minister to countless people along these lines through our compassion and meal ministry, through our community group life, through our benevolent fund, through our biblical counseling ministry that's launching, through our covenant membership. Our church cares and cares deeply about these concerns, compassion toward the poor, justice for the oppressed. And why? Because this is how God in Christ has loved us, poor as we are, oppressed as we know ourselves to be. We love because he first loved us. So may we never minimize the key role, especially that compassion ministry and justice initiatives have and ought to have in this church. May we never minimize that role. Or worse, play evangelism and mercy ministry off against one another as though they are antithetical to each other or can't exist alongside one another in the local church. That's just not true. Compassion and mercy ministry alongside evangelism are of the same cloth because all are compelled by the gospel. That's what our statement of faith is saying here. Compassion and justice ministry demonstrate the gospel. Evangelism communicates the gospel. I heard it put wonderfully this way, that we exist as a church to alleviate suffering especially eternal suffering, right? So compassion and mercy ministry, evangelism, it's all compelled by the gospel. We love because he first loved us. The gospel compels us to live the great commandment. Secondly, the gospel compels us to engage in the great collision. The gospel compels us to engage in the great collision. Look with me, if you would, at the third sentence in Article 8. With God's Word, the Spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat the spiritual forces of evil. So, what does the gospel have to do with spiritual warfare? What's, What's the connection between the good news of Jesus Christ and the enemy that we face in the evil one? Here's the answer to that question. We've said it before in this church, but it bears repeating. Your union with Christ brings you into collision with the devil. Your union with Christ brings you into collision with the devil, which is to say that if you are a Christian, prior to your new birth, you were not in collision with the devil. You were in collusion with the devil. You are in alliance and association with him, doing his bidding. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 is anything but unclear. Uh, Speaking to Christians prior to their conversion, the Bible says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
That's us before God saved us. We were not battling against Satan, that's for sure. We were marching in his army. That was our, the essence of our rebellion. That was the predicament we find ourselves in as unbelievers. In union with Adam, as our statement of faith says, we were sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Satan had us just where he wanted us, under his thumb, until the gospel broke in and God saved us. By his grace, through faith in Jesus, God saved us and he brings us into living union with his son, the Lord Jesus. And the moment that union begins, begins our collision with the devil. So the enemy was not your enemy until Jesus claimed you for his own. But now that he has, the devil is your adversary and God calls you to stand a post and buckle on all of the armor of God. Ephesians 6, 10, and 11 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil, by the way, only has two schemes in this world. Did you know that? And they're directly related to the two things that you cannot do in heaven. Namely, to increasingly put your sin to death and to grow in holiness, so sanctification, and to share the gospel with unbelievers. In other words, evangelism. Those are the two realities that by definition you can't engage in in heaven. The mortification of your sin and the evangelization of sinners. And that is what Satan spends all of his energy on to keep you from engaging in those. And in fact, just so he doesn't press on me, I'm going to redeem the time right now. If you are with us today and you are not a Christian, the first thing you need to know is that we are so grateful that you are here. We are thankful that you would attend this church this morning. And the second thing that you need to know is that despite your rebellion toward him and despite his holy opposition toward you in your sin, you need to know that God loves you. God loves you so much that he sent his son to live and die in your place, enduring the penalty that you deserve for your sin. And he's coming again. Jesus is coming again, not only to, um, well, not only did he die on the cross, but he was raised again and he will return in the future. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. He will soon come in glory. And right now is the time to seek shelter in Christ before one day you'll need to seek shelter from Christ. So put your faith in Jesus this morning. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Christ. Now the devil can't keep you from coming to Christ. That is one thing that he cannot do. And so those two schemes, we need to look back at them now. And there's two of them. Number one, if you're a believer, to make your life miserable from here to heaven. And the other is to keep you from doing what I just did, which is to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Christ. He has two plays in his playbook. That's his battle plan. So how do we fight? How do we arm ourselves for the war? What are the means of grace at our disposal that we can take up and press into service in this collision with the devil? Well, there are many. Our statement of faith just grabs for three. 
three significant, I would say, primary means of grace in doing spiritual warfare. Namely, God's Word, the Spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name. You see that? And allow me simply just, instead of opening up each of these, which could potentially take a long time, allow me just to connect the dots between them. How about that? I'll draw, hopefully, a powerful lesson about how we are to engage in spiritual warfare. Uh, Bible says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. And we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 6.12. And finally, 1 John 5.19 just says it straight. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in his power. So what's our game plan? Like, like exorcisms? Like dramatic, over-the-top power encounters with the demonic realm, breaking strongholds, shouting down the devil, and engaging the powers through long, drawn-out verbal confrontation? Is this what God calls us to do? Well, what does the Bible say? Ephesians 6 says that we fasten on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And we shot our shoes with the gospel of peace. We take up the shield of faith. And you say, well, wait a minute. What, what can faith do when doing battle with the devil? My little faith. <laughs> Ephesians 6.16 says, by our faith, we can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. All of them. We are to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And by the way, don't ever think that you can leave the house without one of these pieces of armor. Jesus represents all of these. If you are in union with Christ, you're wearing this armor now. If you're in Christ, it's on you. So the armor of God Interestingly, with all of these different pieces here, far from representing some flashy, elaborate, laser light show confrontation with our enemy, it's, it's rather unassuming when you get right down to it, isn't it? At the end of the day, the weapons of our warfare are rather pedestrian. Now, by pedestrian, don't hear me saying not powerful. There is nothing more powerful. There's nothing more powerful than a family steeped in Holy Scripture together. Just having uh, caribou with a, a, a brother on Friday, and he was telling me how the whole family is memorizing a certain book of Scripture right now together. And I just thought, <laughs> you guys are buckle on the armor. Or there's nothing more powerful than a single woman wielding the weapon of prayer on her knees day in and day out in her war room There is nothing more powerful than a community group or a whole church filled with the Holy Spirit as we run hard after our mission and vision together as a fellowship. There's nothing more powerful. The gospel compels us to engage in the great collision, to resist the devil who James 5, 7 promises will flee from us. You resist him, he will flee from you. And we draw near to God using the, just the steady state means of grace that he's given us in the church to wage spiritual warfare. Unsurprising as they are, they are incredibly powerful. Preaching, teaching, counseling, baptism, the Lord's Supper, singing in the gathered church, proclaiming the gospel to each other, linking arms in genuine fellowship with one another. 
That's how the gospel compels us to engage in the great collision. One final point today, we're done. The gospel compels us to complete the great commission. The gospel compels us to complete the great commission. Once more, I'll invite you to follow along with me as I read the final sentence in Article 8. In obedience to Christ's commission, we are to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and deed. Let's say that one more time. In obedience to Christ's commission, we are to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and deed. So Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age. That's the great commission. A mission to plant a thriving local church among every ethno-linguistic people group on the planet. And by God's grace, as we continue to focus on world missions, particularly focusing on the unreached and unengaged peoples of this world, of whom there are thousands, we are participating in the forward motion of this commission. What about here at home? Well, here at home we find ourselves at the tail end of 2016. The United States of America poised as we are on the eve, eve of another presidential election. Wondered if you were going to hear anything about the presidential election this morning. That's right now. Big things are in the offing this Tuesday, aren't they? Can't deny it. Our nation, noble in many ways as its heritage is, our nation currently is one that is fissuring and fracturing everywhere we look. We have two candidates, and I think we can all agree, we richly deserve them. What's a Christ follower to do? Well, thankfully, I am relieved of the responsibility to tell you exactly what you ought to do on November 8th. Other than this, be wise. Be discerning. Be prayerful. If possible, consider fasting prior to pulling that lever or checking that box, and maybe after, because there are going to be other people who vote after you. And no matter what else you do on Tuesday, Come Wednesday, be about the king's business. The king's business. Where does that come from? Well, it's a reference to Daniel chapter 8, which we studied in this church back in March. Daniel 8.27. Daniel has just, this great prophet, has received a glimpse, a vision of an end-time battle that's going to take place in the Middle East, this collision of wars. A collision of wars that will result in bringing about the kingdom of the Antichrist. And Daniel is just at a loss. He's done. And he says in Daniel eight twenty-seven, I, Daniel, was overcome 
and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and I went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. That verse pretty well summarizes the experience of a Christ follower in 2016, doesn't it? How many of you feel absolutely wrung out like Daniel over this election cycle? How many of you are just tired? Overcome. You are laying sick and appalled and you don't understand what's going on. Come November 9th, and there will be a November 9th, Lord willing. What are we to do? Let's do what Daniel did. Then I rose, and I went about the king's business. And if Daniel could go about the business of pagan King Belshazzar, how much more we can go about the heavenly business of our King Jesus? And what is our business? It's the last sentence of Article 8. To be and make disciples. I mean, what's, what's the greatest way we can possibly influence the direction of our own lives and the lives of our family and our church and our friends and our neighbors and our colleagues and our classmates and ultimately the nation and ultimately the 2020 election and the 2024 election of Jesus tarries? No guarantee he will. What's the best way we can, we can move forward? Well, our mission. To be and make disciples of Jesus. Our vision to be a gospel-centered church family celebrating and demonstrating and communicating the good news of Jesus Christ among all people. That's the king's business. In obedience to Christ's commission, we are to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and in deed. So Tuesday, by all means, vote. If you are 18, don't waste it. Vote. And then on the 9th and on the 10th and on the 11th and on the 12th until Jesus returns, the gospel, may the gospel compel you, compel you to complete the Great Commission. Well, let's wrap up. We believe that the gospel compels us to Christ-like living and witness in the world. The gospel compels us to live the Great Commission. The gospel compels us to engage in the Great Collision. And the gospel compels us to complete the Great Commission. Is Jesus your obsession? Is who he is and what he's done and what he's doing, is it your compulsion? Does it compel you? If so, what looks differently in your life as you leave this place today? Is it a relational issue that you know needs to be addressed in love? For in this church, we are to love one another. Is it maybe a connection uh, with someone in this community that God is, is making a way into this local church? And so you want to be a part of the broader mission that God is giving us here. Is it an idea for ministry that God is birthing within you as I was talking about compassion ministry and justice initiatives? Pursue that. Tell other people about it. Maybe you're in a season of spiritual opposition and you need someone to pray for you. Just walk alongside you right now. Matt Hendrickson, on behalf of our elders, will be right down here. would love to pray for you if there's anything going on in your life. Maybe the Lord is pressing upon you with this sermon of passion for those outside the family of God. I certainly hope he is. I hope this sermon rung your bell for your list of five whom you could be praying for and caring for and sharing the gospel with. I'll, I'll leave that application to you. Between the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and in conversation with other believers around you, resolve to leave this place 
prepared to walk out the implications of Article 8. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. Next week, it's our second to last Sunday in our statement of faith. Our topic is the fulfillment of the gospel, what we believe about Christ's return. I can't wait to jump into that topic with you. Let's pray.